0: Welcome to Unveiled Faces, a Redeemer Presbyterian Church podcast. Please enjoy our future presentation. When Jesus entered into Jerusalem on that original Palm Sunday, he did it in a way that very conscientiously fulfilled the prophecy of Zechariah 9.9. He told two of his disciples to go get a young donkey for him to ride on. And then he rode that donkey into Jerusalem. And Matthew 21 verses four through five tells us very plainly that all this was done, that it might be fulfilled, which is spoken by the prophet saying, tell the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, John's gospel makes the same connection. Like Matthew, John describes Jesus riding the donkey, and then he quotes Zechariah nine, showing that Jesus fulfilled Zechariah's prophecy. But then John adds a detail that's not included in any of the other gospel writers, uh, by, by any of the other gospel writers. John explains that Jesus' disciples did not make the connection between Zechariah's prophecy and what Jesus was doing when he rode the donkey into Jerusalem. John 12, verse 16 says, his disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him. In other words, it wasn't until after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus that the disciples began to make sense of what they had witnessed and experienced on Palm Sunday. And this is not the only occasion when that type of thing happened. If Um, we see something very similar back in John 2. You may recall the occasion when Jesus said to the Jews, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up again. Uh, The Jews thought that Jesus was speaking nonsense. They said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? Evidently, the 12 disciples were just as baffled by Jesus' statement as the, the Pharisees and the scribes were. They didn't, the, the, the disciples didn't realize that Jesus was speaking about the temple of His body. Now we know that Jesus was speaking about the temple of His body because John 2.21 clearly explains this. But the disciples did not understand that at the time this dialogue was happening. But then in verse 22, Um, it it explains how the, the disciples came to the realization of what Jesus was actually talking about. John writes in 2.22, therefore, when Jesus had risen from the dead, right, when Jesus had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said concerning raising the temple in three days. Now, this is a very similar. Um, this is very similar to their, the disciples' understanding of Zechariah's prophecy on, on Palm Sunday. In both cases, both when Jesus said he'll, he'll, you know, build this temple in three days, as well as when he rode in on a donkey. In both cases, this, the, the disciples did not understand what was happening in the moment, but after they had witnessed the resurrection and Jesus' ascension their theological paradigm was greatly enhanced. They knew something about Jesus that they had not known before, and this greatly enhanced their theology. Now now they could remember experiences that they had with Jesus in the past, and they could reinterpret those experiences more accurately. They were able to say to each other, Now I understand what Jesus meant when he said he's going to rebuild the temple in three days. He wasn't talking about the physical temple, the one that's made of stone. He was talking about raising his body from the dead. And they were able to say to each other, Now I understand what Jesus, when Jesus told us to bring him the donkey and and we walked alongside him and he rode into Jerusalem, now I understand that that was fulfilling Zechariah's prophecy there's a lesson for us to learn here. The more we know about the person and work of Jesus, the more accurately we understand our experiences with him. The more we know about the person and work of Jesus, the more accurately we understand our experiences with Jesus. Or we can state this same Biblical principle in the opposite direction. The less we know about the person and work of Jesus, the less we understand our experiences with him. And I submit to you that one of the central reasons people become bored with Jesus, disappointed with Jesus, annoyed with Jesus, is because they've grown, they they have not grown in their knowledge of the person and work of Jesus. The truth is, most of us are carrying around a lot of misinformation about Jesus. Uh, We've been influenced by our culture's caricatures of Jesus. So we're carrying around that baggage. Uh, We may have picked up some bad theology from religious television and radio programs. So we're carrying around that baggage. And maybe we grew up going to Sunday school where virtually every story, Bible story, was taught from a moralistic perspective perspective. What do we learn from Noah? To be obedient. What do we learn from Abraham? To be patient. What do we learn from Gideon? To be courageous. And what do we learn from Jesus feeding the multitudes? That even a young boy who's willing to share the little he has can make a big impact on the world. It's moralism. In many cases, moralism without Christ. Most people are carrying around a lot of misinformation about the person and work of Jesus. And if, if such a person is not growing in biblical knowledge of who Jesus is, what he has done, what he is doing now, what he has promised to do in the future, if a person is not growing in this knowledge, that person has stagnated. He's like a pond of stagnant water. And you know what happens to a pond of stagnant water it grows algae, it becomes a breeding ground for mosquitoes, it starts stinking, and then it eventually dries up. Such is the person who does not grow in their knowledge of Jesus. He becomes bored with Jesus, he becomes disappointed with Jesus, he becomes annoyed with Jesus and he eventually turns against Jesus. One of the shocking developments in the Passion Week of Jesus is how the multitudes turned against him. On Palm Sunday, they were singing Hosannas to him. They were proclaiming him to be their king. But a couple days later, they were crying out for his crucifixion saying, we have no other king than Caesar. How do we explain such a radical shift what caused so many people to go from proclaiming his kingship to demanding his death? There are several correct answers to this question. We can say that it was all part of the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. Right, that's the answer Peter gives in the Pentecost sermon he preached in Acts 2. Or we can say that it was the deceptive work of principalities, powers, the rulers of darkness, and spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. That's the answer Paul implies in Ephesians 6. But the answer I'd like for us to consider this morning is that it was the people's misunderstanding of Jesus. And when I say misunderstanding, I'm referring to a very specific form of misunderstanding. The people misunderstood the nature of the work that Jesus was doing, the nature of the work. If you think back to Matthew 16, when Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? That was a question concerning the identity of Jesus. Or we can say it was a question about the person of Jesus. Some said he was John the Baptist, some say he was Elijah. Others said he was Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. That was confusion concerning the person of Jesus. But what happened on Palm Sunday was not confusion concerning the person of Jesus, but of the work of Jesus. The multitudes correctly identified Jesus as the son of David. They understood that he was the promised Messiah who will occupy the throne of David. And this is evident by the way they cried out, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. So the multitude was not confused about the person of Jesus. They were confused about the work of Jesus. They thought he was going to make Israel a sovereign nation again. They thought he had come as the conquering king to liberate them from Roman rule. They thought he was going to do what's prophesied in Psalm 2 that he will set up his throne on the holy hill in Zion and break the nations with a rod of iron, dashing them to pieces like a potter's vessel. And they thought that Jesus would do what's prophesied in Psalm 110. He shall execute kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the nations. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. He shall execute the heads of many countries. So on Sunday, the multitude was waving palm branches as they rejoiced in the son of David. But over the course of the next several days, this son of David didn't assault the romans he assaulted the jews he made trouble in the temple running around with a whip and turning over tables he critiqued the chief priests and elders by telling parables that insinuated they were not the servants that they claimed to be the servants of god that they claimed to be he got into a conflict with the Pharisees and the Herodians over taxes. He got into a conflict with the Sadducees concerning the resurrection, eventually telling them that they don't even know the scriptures nor the power of God. Then Jesus preached to the multitudes publicly publicly pronouncing a long series of woes against the scribes and Pharisees, calling them hypocrites, blind guides, serpents, a brood of vipers, and so on and so on. And then, as if all of that wasn't enough, Jesus said that the holy temple in Jerusalem has been left desolate and that the generation he was speaking to will see its destruction. So severe a destruction that not one stone will be left upon another. Now you can imagine what the multitudes must have been thinking. Why is Jesus attacking us? Why is he pronouncing our destruction? Why isn't he going after the real enemy? Why doesn't he do what the son of David is supposed to do? We often think that the reason people reject Jesus is because they're confused about his person. We think that if they just knew who he really is, then they'd have a different opinion of him. And that's true in a lot of cases. Many people are confused about his person. So, uh, but I'm not sure that we realize how many people were confused about Jesus's work. Like the multitude on Palm Sunday, there are many people today who have properly identified Jesus person. They know that he is the Lord. They know that he is the savior. They know that he is the son of God but they're confused about the work that Jesus is doing right now. Whether it's because they've been influenced by cultural caricatures or bad theology or moralistic Sunday school stories or just plain biblical ignorance. They have wrong expectations about what Jesus is actually doing today. Paul Tripp, in his excellent devotional book entitled New Morning Mercies, has written about five ways people are mistaken about the work of Jesus. Paul Tripp has given creative names to these five mistakes, and each of the names captures the essence of what people mistakenly think Jesus ought to be doing right now. The first is the vacation planner, Jesus. Some people think that Jesus exists to make their life easier and more pleasurable, They think that his work is to make them happy in this world. And while we'd probably like to think that the person who believes this is uh, solely responsible um, for this misinformation, that they are indeed confusing the American dream with the Christian experience, we can't always put 100% of of the blame on that person. The truth is, A lot of Christians have contributed to the vacation planner Jesus mistake by the way we evangelize the lost. When we share the gospel with unbelievers, some Christians say something to the effect of, Come to Jesus and he'll fix all your problems. Is your marriage on the rocks? Do your children disrespect you? Are you disappointed with the direction your life is going? Then come to Jesus and he'll fix everything. This is a bait and switch method of evangelism because Jesus never promised that he's gonna solve all the problems we're experiencing in our lives. What Jesus promised is that every tear will be wiped away when we go to be with him in glory. But in this present fallen world, we're told that trials and tribulations are the forge that our Lord uses for preparing us for the glories of eternity, so we, we, we must not promise the vacation planner Jesus to the unbelievers we evangelize. We must not mislead them into believing that if they become a Christian, then everything in their life is gonna get better. We, what we can promise them, however, is that if they believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, then they'll receive a new heart and a new mind, a renewed mind, which will enable them to, better understand their purpose in this world. And they'll also gain an assurance that Jesus loves them and is working all things together for their good, for their sanctification, preparing them for the glorious eternity, which far exceeds anything they can possibly imagine. But we must also be ready to explain that, um, to the person we're evangelizing that their problems may very well increase if they become a Christian. This is because they presently belong to the world and the world has no reason to oppose those who belong to it. But if the person places his faith in Jesus and is made a citizen of heaven, then the world will turn uh, on the new Christian and begin persecuting him. 1 John 3.13 says to Christians, do not be surprised, brothers, when the world hates you. Do not, do not be surprised, brothers, when the world hates you. Now, why shouldn't we be surprised? Jesus answered this question in John 15, verses 18 through 20. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet, because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So maybe it's because Christians have been using the bait and switch tactics in our evangelism, failing to be realistic about what life looks like as a a citizen of heaven, or maybe it's just because certain people read only what they wanna read in the scriptures. Whatever the case, there are people who mistakenly think that Jesus's purpose in, in this world is to make their life easier and more pleasurable. And this will always, always lead to disappointment and discouragement with Jesus because they'll judge his goodness by the amount of suffering in their lives and when they determine that their suffering is more than what it should be, then they'll begin to doubt Jesus' goodness. Brothers and sisters, if you judge Jesus' love for you by the degree of difficulty you experience, you'll probably end up thinking that he doesn't love you very much. If you judge his faithfulness by how much disappointment and grief you have uh, had to deal with in this world, then you'll probably end up thinking that he has not kept his end of the bargain. And if you judge his power and authority by how much evil you witness in this world, then you'll probably end up thinking that he's not much of a king. But that would be a tragic miscalculation, akin to the tragic miscalculation the multitude made during the Passion Week. The times in your life when things do not seem to be working as you hope they would, or the times when when you experience deep disappointment, or the times when you suffer loss, or the times when trials come upon you, these do not indicate that Jesus is asleep at the wheel or that he has forgotten about you. Nor should they make you conclude that he doesn't love you or that he doesn't answer your prayers what we need to remember is that difficult times in this present world are part of our Savior's plan. They're the way He rescues us, the way He transforms us and delivers His amazing grace to us. And as such, Jesus is not working in your life right, uh, right now to give you, you know, the, the fleeting happiness of pursuing the pleasures of this world. That's not what Jesus is doing. He's not the vacation planner Jesus. Rather, he is working to produce something much better in you, much better than the the fleeting joys and happiness that this world can offer. Jesus is giving to you the eternal joy and fellowship that you will experience in the new heavens and new earth. He is working that into your life today. The reality is that Jesus has little interest in our selfish wish lists He did not spill his blood so that I can have the things in this world that I think will make me happy. When he demanded that we pick up our cross and follow him, he wasn't telling us that we're going to go from one pleasurable activity to another. And when he said that we are to die to ourselves daily, he wasn't telling us that our lives will be free of trial and hardship. Rather, this present life is a time of preparation for the final glorious destination that will be our eternal home. And the reason we possess an optimistic hope as we walk through these trials and hardships is because we know that Jesus does indeed reign sovereign as a king, and he is in the process of fulfilling all of his precious promises to us. So that's the first mistake people make concerning the work of Jesus. The second mistake people make is the one that Paul Tripp calls the suggestion box Jesus. Many people don't want Jesus to issue commands to them, telling them what they need to do with their life. Instead, they want Jesus to give them suggestions, and nothing more than suggestions. And this is a consequence of the fall. Our sinful human nature rebels against external authority. We don't like it when somebody tells us what we need to do. We'd rather be autonomous. We'd rather be accountable to nobody but ourselves. And one of the dark delusions of sin is that it causes us to embrace the insane idea that we might be smarter than the Lord. It's during these seasons of delusion that we find ourselves rebelling against His commandments so that we can do what we want. Not what He wants, but what we want. And when we persist in this rebellion, the Lord has ways of Graciously reminding us that He is the one who's in authority. He has ways of graciously reminding us that His commandments are not suggestions. And part of the work that Jesus is doing in our lives today is bringing us into submission to His authority. He does this through the presence and power of His Spirit, who convicts us of our sin, who gives us humble hearts of repentance and who causes us to walk in his commandments. Or to put it in the words of Psalm 23, Jesus is shepherding us. He's our shepherd. He makes us lie down in green pastures. He's leading us beside the still waters. He's restoring our souls. And he's leading us in paths of righteousness. Why? For his name's sake. For his name's sake, because he's the one with the authority. A third mistake people make about the work of Jesus is the one that Paul Tripp calls the district attorney Jesus. This is when we want Jesus to prosecute the people who have wronged us or made our lives difficult. This is an easy error, easy mistake for us to fall into because God has placed a desire for justice in each one of our hearts. It's part of what it means to be made in the image of God. We understand justice we understand what righteousness is, and when that's violated, we understand that it's un- unjust or unjust. And so when we face injustice, it's tempting for us to want uh, the vengeance of Jesus to be poured out upon the responsible parties. It's like the time the, uh, when the Samaritans didn't receive Jesus as he was passing through their country uh, on his way to Jerusalem. And so James and John had the District Attorney Jesus in mind, when they turned to him and asked, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just like Elijah did? And do you remember how Jesus responded to that suggestion? Luke 9, verses 55 and 56. But he turned and rebuked them and said, you do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, But to save them. A major part of the work that Jesus has been doing and continues to do today is saving people's souls from eternal damnation. Jesus is graciously calling sinners to himself in order that they may be saved from that great and terrible day of the the Lord when Jesus does return and he does come in judgment, and he, and he does come in wrath and fury, and he will destroy his enemies. So when we think of Jesus' present work as that of a district attorney, we're being like James and John. We're trying to invoke Jesus' power and authority to satisfy our own sense of vengeance and, ret- and retribution. But But even more so, we're making the... uh, we're mistaking the age that we live in, the time in which we live. We're living in the age of grace. We're living in the age when Jesus is bringing his enemies uh, in, in submission to himself, but he's not doing this through the rod of iron that dashes his enemies to pieces. Rather, he's graciously converting his enemies into his friends. He's making his enemies into his friends by cleansing them from all their filthiness and idolatry. He's giving them a new heart and putting a new spirit within them. He's taking the heart of stone out of their flesh and giving them a heart of flesh. And he's putting a spirit within them and causing them to walk in his statutes and keep his commandments. There will come a day when the age of grace will end and Jesus will return to this earth as the district attorney. On that day, he will dash his enemies to pieces with the rod of iron, just like Psalm 2 says. He will unleash his righteous wrath and fury on everyone who has not believed upon him in faith, compelling them through the administration of his brute force to bow their knee and confess that he is Lord. That day is coming. But to think that Jesus would do that to people who are living on the earth now is to mistake the nature of the work that he is doing. He is not the district attorney right now. He is the compassionate Savior who laid down his life in order that he may seek and save those who are lost. As he said to, to James and John, I did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. Failing to distinguish the work that Jesus began at his first coming and the work that he will begin at his second coming is the mistake the multitude made during the Passion Week. They correctly identified Jesus as the Son of David and they correctly understood that the Son of David will dash his enemies to pieces with a rod of iron. But they mistook the timing of when Jesus would destroy his enemies because they did not account for his grace. They didn't understand that he came to lay his life down for his friends and and to give his life as a ransom for many. And we make the same mistake today when we think of Jesus's present work as that of a district attorney. The day will come, as I've said, when he will prosecute his enemies, exacting justice upon those who are not in submission to him by grace through faith. But until that day comes... Jesus continues to graciously save his people from his sins. And that is the work that we must understand him performing today. The fourth misunderstanding of Jesus' work that Paul Tripp writes about is the match.com Jesus. The match.com Jesus is supposed to give you somebody who will complete you and meet all your needs. When God created humanity... He designed us as social beings, which means we're designed to live in vertical community with God and horizontal community with one another. And the Bible makes it crystal clear that the horizontal finds its place in the vertical. The horizontal finds its place in the vertical, which is to say, we can only know the true, love, the, the true joys of human love when God is our first and highest love. When the Lord is in His proper place in our hearts, then our relationships with other people will fall into their proper places as well. But when the Lord is not first in our hearts, then we'll be looking to a human relationship to fulfill the needs and longings that only our Savior is capable of fulfilling. In other words, the person who views Jesus as the match.com Jesus is looking for other people to provide the love, acceptance, and deep sense of well-being that only Jesus is able to provide. And looking to another person never works. It never works because other people will always fail you. In some way, every human relationship in your life is going to disappoint you, even your most closest most godly relationships with another human being. And this is why it's so alarming and disturbing when you hear somebody say to another person, you complete me, or you make me whole, or I can't live without you. These kinds of statements reveal idolatry within the heart because they're putting a sinful human being in the place that's supposed to be occupied by the Lord. And these kinds of statements reveal idolatry within the heart because they demonstrate that the person who's making these statements is putting all their hope and security in the loving affection of a sinful human being rather than the loving affection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what the Scriptures teach us is that we can only be made whole, we can only be made complete by the saving work of Jesus. And while the Lord does intend for us to enjoy rich, horizontal relationships, we must not make idols of those relationships. He may very likely give you a spouse with whom you can share many years of deeply satisfying human relationship. But if that horizontal relationship becomes the center of your thoughts and desires, then you're making an idol of your spouse. You, you're, you're wanting your spouse to do for you what only Jesus is able to do for you. And this always leads to frustration and disappointment. And when frustration and disappointment set in, you'll be tempted to blame the match.com Jesus for not providing you with a person who is able to truly complete you and make you whole. This, brothers and sisters, is not only the sin of idolatry, but it's the source of so much relational dysfunction and heartache in people's marriages and lives. And the fifth mistake people make about the work of Jesus uh, that Paul, is what Paul Tripp calls the Neiman Marcus Jesus. The Neiman Neiman Marcus Jesus is supposed to make all your champagne wishes and caviar dreams come true. And the fact is, we all have dreams. And there's nothing wrong with having dreams. We all have dreams. We all have desires and ambitions that we hope to see come true. But the person who believes Jesus' work is to make all our champagne wishes and caviar dreams come true is allowing their heart to be captured by their dreams. Their dreams become the definition of what life should be. And as such, they no longer hold their dreams loosely with an open hand. Rather, what was once hoped for, what was once a a hope for desire has morphed into a demand. And it doesn't take long before the demand is perceived as a right or a need. And so the thing they once wished for has become a non-negotiable that they're unwilling to live without. And soon they're living in frustration and discouragement. Not because life has really been so difficult for them, but because the thing that's ruling their heart is beyond their grasp. And they know it. They know that the thing that's ruling their heart is beyond their grasp. So they begin to question why Jesus has denied them the very thing that they believe they're entitled to. They wonder why the Neiman Marcus Jesus has refused to give it to them when that's what he's supposed to be doing. And they begin to speculate that the Lord has forgotten about them or that he must not love them. They doubt his goodness and his wisdom. And in severe cases, they will eventually begin to despair of life itself they'll reason to themselves if this is what my life is going to be like, if Jesus is going to deny me the very things I so desperately need, then what is there to live for? Brothers and sisters, when your dreams rule your heart rather than Jesus Christ ruling your heart, the dreams will wreak havoc on your spiritual life. Jesus will no longer be the source of your joy and motivation. He will no longer be the foundation of your courage and your hope. Sadly, in your mind, Jesus will be uh, reduced to a delivery system. If he happens to deliver according to your dreams and demands, then you'll deem him worthy of worship. But if he fails to deliver, then his goodness and love will be called into question and you'll have little motivation to worship him. Perhaps this is what Jesus was describing in Revelation two, verse four, when he spoke about those who have abandoned their first love. They let dreams and other desires control their hearts. Now, I'm sure if we put our minds to it, uh, we can come up with many other ways that people mistake the work of Jesus in our present day. I think the five that I've just described make the point, however, like the multitude on Palm Sunday, it's possible for us to properly identify the person of Jesus and sorely mistake the work of Jesus. And mistaking the work of Jesus is one of the central reasons people become bored with Jesus, disappointed with Jesus, annoyed with Jesus, and even turn against Jesus like the multitudes did. So how do we guard ourselves against mistaking the work of Jesus? And how do we, how would we even know if we're mistaking the work of Jesus? Maybe we think we we have it all figured out, but in reality, we're deceived. Let me remind you of the biblical principle I described at the beginning of the sermon. The more we know about the person and work of Jesus, the more accurately we understand our experiences of him or with him. And I shared a couple examples of how that worked for the disciples in their lives. Um, There were times when Jesus did and said things that they mistook in the moment. But later, as their knowledge of the person and work of Jesus increased, their understanding was sharpened, their theology was sharpened. They were able to discern things that they had not been able to discern earlier. And they were able to say, now I get it. Now I get it. Now I know what Jesus was doing when he did such and such or when he said this and that. The knowledge that made the biggest difference for the disciples was that knowledge that they acquired by experiencing Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven. These events brought everything into focus for them. It put everything in its proper place, at least almost. Almost. And you and I, we have the distinct advantage over the disciples because we have the written Word of God which tells us all these details, everything we need to know about the person and work of Jesus, including the details of His death, resurrection, and ascension, but everything else about Jesus as well. So to answer the question of how we can increase in our knowledge of the person and work of Jesus, it's by reading, studying, memorizing and meditating upon the scriptures. Every page of the Bible tells us about the person and work of Jesus. You realize that, don't you? Every page of the Bible tells us about the person and work of Jesus. Old Testament, New Testament, all of it points to who Jesus is, what he has done in the past, what he is doing today and what he will do in the future. So if you know that Jesus is the Lord and Savior, but you discover that you're bored with him or you're disappointed with him or you're annoyed with him or you think he doesn't love you and care for you or you wonder why he doesn't give you the things you think you need, then you probably have a mistaken understanding of the work Jesus is performing in your life and the work that he is performing in this world right now. The solution to this problem is to pray that the Lord will increase your knowledge of the person and work of Jesus. Pray that he'll cleanse your mind of the cultural caricatures, the bad theology, the moralistic baggage that you've been carrying from your past. Pray that his spirit will give you understanding of the spiritual things that belong to the mind of Christ. Then, Apply yourself to reading and receiving the, and absorbing the scriptures. Apply yourself to reading and receiving and absorbing into your very being the scriptures. And when you do, know that the spirit of Christ will transform you by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Amen. And let's pray. This has been a presentation of Redeemer Presbyterian Church. For more resources and information, please stop by our website at visitredeemer.org. All material here within, unless otherwise noted, copyright Redeemer Presbyterian Church, Elk Grove, California. Music furnished by Nathan Clark George, available at nathanclarkgeorge.com.